everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they were very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. Hey everybody, on this episode of the show, I sat down with Jonathan Robinson. Jonathan is a really interesting guy. Um, I believe maybe his publicist reached out to me. Uh, he recently wrote a new book on MDMA therapy. Uh, he's really interesting in that he, I think, was really one of the pioneers uh, a number of decades ago actually doing his dissertation on MDMA um, and the, the therapeutic uses of that. It, he was really well known for a period. Uh, he did a lot of work and he wrote a few books on this idea of enlightenment, of happiness, on kind of as we would call nowadays uh, life hacks, uh, practices, techniques that really uh, help to expedite that or 
or uh, techniques that, that really help to facilitate that. Um, and recently, a lot of his work uh, has shifted to MDMA therapy uh, because he really sees that as, as one of these techniques that's really at the forefront of uh, being able to help people and, and help people therapeutically uh, to be able to achieve these more happy, peaceful, uh, connected states. So it was really fascinating conversation to sit down and speak with him. Uh, I think he's doing really good work. Uh, again, he's, uh, I think, really at the, the forefront or the vanguard of, of doing this work on a, on a larger scale and bringing this work more out to the public. Um, so, you know, that's also a, a big part of this podcast is... Um, uh, these different plants or substances that are being used in therapeutical effects, especially with this idea of psychedelic assisted therapy. Uh, so I think he's uh, really one of the prominent voices uh, to be able to, to speak with that. And uh, he's not just speaking from a, a theoretical point of view, but actually from a, a practical point of view, because it's uh, part of his practice as well. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is really good option. It's a subscription service. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all of the patrons, to all of the people supporting that way, as always, thank you very much for your help. It's really what allows me to continue doing this work. And if you're able to, to support, if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, uh, that's a really um, beautiful way to help to give back. Uh, if you're not able to do that, as always, just doing some of the really small things makes a really big difference, uh, helping with the algorithms to get this show out to a bigger audience. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, uh, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section, all those things really help. And then if you're listening to this on the audio version uh, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and also a short review is very helpful. So I think that's it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with John. Running up from the maze. Running up from the maze. Running out of the maze today. Running up from the maze. Running up from the maze. Running up from the maze today. Running up from the maze. Running up from the maze. Run out of the maze today. All right, well, thank you for coming on. Um, we were speaking a little bit before we started, and I believe it was maybe your publicist who reached out to me, and um, I familiarized myself with a bit of your work, and um, I, I think you, you will be and are a really great guest and, and very much in line with a lot of the topics of this podcast. I would imagine actually some of the audience has probably heard of you because you are quite well known, you know, maybe also depending on the age of the audience. But there was a time where, uh, you know, you made a number of TV appearances, you've written a number of books. So I would imagine some of the audience has heard of you. But for anyone who hasn't, uh, maybe, you know, it's always a, a big question. But, but who are you and, and, and kind of what, what led you to, to begin doing the work that, that you're doing? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm still on the. Uh process of knowing who am I, but I can tell you a little bit about my past. Um, I, I was brought up in a very dysfunctional family with a lot of violence. So uh, around age 12, since I couldn't escape my family, I decided to go kind of within. 
So by the time I was 13, I was meditating and doing self-hypnosis and realizing that you could find happiness within no matter what's going on outside of your world. And that kind of gave me a head start in that I, I create a hobby. You know, some people collect baseball cards. I collected methods for happiness, uh, inner peace, and spiritual growth. And that led to a lot of great experiences. Uh, I interviewed over 100 spiritual teachers, ranging from uh, the late Mother Teresa and Ram Dass and Wayne Dyer to the Dalai Lama. And I'm always asking, what's the most powerful method for psychological or spiritual growth? And of course, one of those are psychedelics, plant medicines, and the drug MDMA, which is, uh, or ecstasy, which is what my latest book is about. How, how would you define spiritual growth? Because uh, I think, you know, even probably when you started doing this work, it there was certainly that terminology was in our lexicon. I mean, especially I think during the, the hippie days and a lot of bands made it, I think, quite famous. But I think it was something that kind of went away. And, and at least kind of what I feel is it's really come back in recent years. But but I think a lot of people have very different ideas about what that is. So what is that for, for you? Yeah. You know, one of the times I was on the Oprah show, uh, she was asking questions from one of my books, and she asked the person, do you believe in God? And the person said, absolutely not. And then Oprah said, well, do you believe in a force of love in the universe that's, like, intelligent? And she said, oh, of course. Well, Oprah said, well, I guess you believe in God, because that's my definition of God. You know, so uh, it is important to define these things because a lot of times people are using terms that mean very different things to different people. So the simplest definition I have for spirituality is uh, things that lead you to more uh, inner peace, more love, and more joy, and more self-awareness. So if you have those four things, you're probably a pretty mature, uh, wonderful person. And none of those things are easy nowadays. You know, we live in a uh, very stressful world. And the culture or the culture that we live in doesn't really support those things. So it's usually a very much an inner journey of uh, finding what works for you. You know, I've spent some time in a Hindu monastery, sometime in a Christian monastery, sometime in a Buddhist monastery. I was born Jewish. Um, so I know that uh, there are a lot of different ways to do that. And part of our job is to find what works for us. That's my, my basic religion now. What works for you? Hmm. It's, it's interesting. It, it's one of the interesting things I find is you know, and this is obviously a generalization, but I think often if I was to ask more kind of normal people, what's a definition of spirituality, they, they would give something like that, something like joy, happiness, peace. But often I find when you kind of speak to people who are often maybe more ingrained or study specific systems, and, and again, this could just be my, my interpretation, but it also, it often feels like there's 
there's something that they don't agree with, like this that this idea of joy or happiness is too base. It's too um, maybe not important enough. And and yet, so many of these traditions really do seem to be pointing to this idea of of some idea of peace, of happiness. I mean, you know, even in in, in Hebrew, like shalom, or or in Arabic, like. Uh, Salam alaikum. You know, it's this idea of like, may peace be with you, as if this is one of the highest things that a human being can can achieve. Yeah, you know, I when I interviewed all these spiritual leaders, I'd always ask them, what's the meaning or purpose of life? And uh, if people buy my book, they will find out. No, I'm I'm kidding you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I stopped asking after about fifty people because they all said the same thing, which I found interesting because. If you ask 50 scientists uh, what a virus is, you'll get a lot of different answers. But if you ask 50 spiritual leaders what the purpose of life is, they all said the same thing. So um, it really came down to two things. One is they said it's about finding our purpose is to find peace and love within, you know, what, what has been called the kingdom of heaven. And once you have some of that, to go out and help people and help the planet, you know, to be of service. Well, it ends up most people don't have much peace or love inside themselves, or they haven't found it. So they're not necessarily a great service. But uh, there are methods now, there are technologies that are really fast at bringing people to greater love and peace. And I found uh, ecstasy um, or MDMA to be one of the best technologies for doing that. And that's why I'm excited that uh, uh, the FDA is likely to give it uh, approval this year as a way to heal people of some of their psychological challenges. Hmm. A lot of your your early work also was on this idea of, of enlightenment. Would you say that that's synonymous with this idea of, of, of inner peace and love? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, enlightenment, you once again, like spiritually, have to define what it is. And the way I define it in, in my book, The Enlightenment Project, is um, it's a shift in identity from your personality and ego to a presence of love. And people who say they are enlightened, they, they don't really identify with any person or individual sense of self. They identify as just like this open, peaceful presence of love. And, you know, most people have tapped into that for a period of time, maybe even just a couple minutes, or they do it on plant medicine. But people who are enlightened, um, experience that persistently and what was that like uh being able to interview so many uh people who are really considered spiritual icons i mean i it, it's quite a rare thing i think that that someone has, has spoken to, to so many people from you know such varied backgrounds but who all share kind of this this commonality that it, at least many people tend to, to look to those people as as kind of elevated beings, people who actually bring them a sense of peace, who, who bring them a sense of guidance. Well, it was a lot of fun and a little bit nerve-wracking if you're talking to Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama or whoever. Um, uh, but, you know, 
such people tend to be very warm and also uh, rather funny. And so luckily, I, I think I have a sense of humor. At least my friends tell me so. Uh, that's why they're my friends, probably. But, um, you know, we often joked around. And I think they appreciate that because when you're when you're put on a pedestal like that, sometimes people act really uh, stiff. But I, I just realized that they were people. They were just people who had had a awakening and they were trying to be of service. So my asking all these questions is how we can do what they did. Uh, they really enjoyed those types of interviews. Did, did you notice any commonalities or patterns or anything that you picked up from from the stories of these people? Well, I think everybody had a sense of mission, which was to help people. Um, a lot of them were, uh, you could just feel the love emanating from them, you know, whether it be Ajashanti or Dr. Wayne Dyer or Ramdas. There's a, a sincerity there that um, feels like a sense of mission, like I'm trying to be of help. I, You know, one thing that I was pleased with is that there's also a humility there. You know, as you grow in your consciousness, uh, you really grow in your humility. Whereas in the regular world, the world of business, if you grow in your success there, you tend to have a bigger ego. So it was really nice hanging out with them. And some of them became pretty go, uh, good friends. You know, uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer and Ram Dass, I considered a friend. They were very helpful to me. And um, I try and pass on some of what they taught me in my books and, uh, and in my way of being with people, because how you treat people is a, a good sense of how you, uh, what your consciousness is. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was interesting with the, I guess it was the, the guest before last who I interviewed, a really beautiful woman named Leela Lieberman, but she was saying something which I had never really thought about because I'm, I'm always very interested in the etymology of words. And uh, she was saying how the etymology of the word human, it's uh, the same root word as, as humus or soil. And so to be human actually means to be of the soil. And, and it's also where the word humility mm -hmm. comes from. Uh, you know, mm. to, to kind of be close to the earth, to to, to mm -hmm. be of the soil, which I think there's something really beautiful about that. Of kind of to really be human is to be humble. There's there's something quite profound to that. Um, well, we're on a we're we're on a big ball going seventy thousand miles through an hour through outer space, but we lose that picture. Uh, you know, we our egos can take over or personalities and really we're a, a speck of dust in an infinite ocean and part of spirituality is to realize that even though you are a separate speck of dust or a body you are also the ocean and when people feel that they are part of that ocean they get filled up with compassion and peace and they don't take uh, the ups and downs of life too seriously You mentioned this idea that one of the things that really interested you were were these technologies of, of being able to find more more inner peace, more joy. Um, 
Can you maybe share some of those? I mean, I, I know there, there there's a lot of them, but maybe ones that have that have stuck with you that, that have kind of stood the test of time, and that the, you you find them to be to be quite effective. Because I think that is one thing, you know, in, in this information age, there we're, we're kind of inundated. There's so many techniques and so many practices and so many different ways, and and I think often uh, people can get kind of overwhelmed in that, and yet. You know, often some of the the most simple things are are the most effective. And you know, I, for example, I, I remember you mentioning one, and it, it's something that that I found to be very helpful in, in my own path. Is uh, sometimes when that feeling of overwhelm comes, I I forget exactly how you phrased it, but something along the lines of like, what else is going on? Uh, you know, the, mm. the way I phrase it is is usually this idea of just slowing down and like really like looking not from the the pattern i was but just like focusing on something else or listening to to what's happening and and there there is a very profound shift that can happen and, and some of those techniques I, mm -hmm. I think are really really simple and really useful in that way yeah you know jason i i've really collected methods i have about 250 that i've collected that i think are very helpful um so let's put in two categories there's outer technology you know, if you use your smartphone well, you could listen to meditation apps, or you can uh, have reminders to take a break. You know, that's that's one thing. Um, you can uh, use inner technologies. Those are different types of meditations, or they might be questions like, what else is going on? Or what could be good about this? Or a simple technique like focusing on your heart and noticing if there's any peace in that area, and if there is, trying to savor it. You know, I think of, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, many years ago, after interviewing a lot of people, a lot of them said that gratitude was a great way to connect with, uh, with deeper realities and, and uh, peace and spirituality. So I was kind of attuned to gratitude, but I'm kind of lazy. So I didn't want to start a gratitude journal or anything. But a friend of mine had gone back from India, and he looked all lit up. And I wondered, you know, what happened in India? And he said, well, my guru gave me this brand new mantra that makes me feel gratitude all the time. Well, I wanted to know what that mantra was. So I asked him, and he said, no, you have to go to India and get it directly from the guru. So I always want the latest technology, the best methods. So I went to India. Uh, have you ever been to India, Jason? So, so you know, it's a, it's a long way away and not easy to travel. Uh, so I, you know, travel the 18,000 miles. I take a rickshaw for three hours. Um, and I have to wait in line maybe three or four hours to talk to the guru. I'm kind of pissed off at this point because, you know, I just want the stupid mantra. Just give me the phrase, you know, or whatever it is. But finally, I get a chance to talk to the guy. And I say, you know, I hear you have this mantra for feeling gratitude all the time. And I'd really appreciate getting uh, getting that. And in an Indian accent, he says, yes, my mantra is the most powerful mantra on earth. And he leans in to whisper it in my ears. I'm not even breathing because I want to make sure I get every syllable just perfectly. And so he says, whenever possible, repeat these words. The mantra I give you are the words, thank you. 
Well, I look at him, I, I figure he's joking with me. So I say, you know, well, I'm just waiting for the real thing. And, and he's not smiling. He's, you know, he says, well, like, what do you think? And I say, that's it? And he says, no, 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 no. That's it is a mantra you have been using. That makes you feel like you never have enough. My mantra is thank you, not that's it. That's it will take you nowhere. So I'm totally pissed off now. And I say, well, thanks for nothing. And he says, thanks for nothing is not the mantra. You must say it from your heart. So when you eat good food, say thank you. Or when you see your child or sunset or your pet, say thank you from your heart and you will be filled with gratitude. And, you know, it's funny, uh, Jason, that the simplest things are often the most powerful. So you and I live better than billionaires lived 40 years ago. But if you're not feeling your heart and feeling a sense of thank you for the gifts of life, then you miss it all. And so throughout the day, I often will say thank you. You know, I live uh, in uh, the the foothills of California. Last year, we didn't have electricity for 14 days due to a snowstorm. And it was 20 degrees Fahrenheit here. And um, I was freezing cold, literally, like almost like just shivering all day. So now when I wake up and there's electricity, which is pretty much every day, I say, thank you for the heat. You know, thank you for the light. Thank you that uh, I have food because all our food spoiled. You know, that there's a lot to be grateful for and there's a lot of messed up things in the world. But if you have some simple technique like that or a good question uh, or help from our gadgets, you know, like a smartphone, that can really make it a lot easier to, to keep this love and peace alive in your heart. For some reason, I can't hear you now. Oh, yeah, sorry. I actually, uh, I had it muted. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah there, there's some background noise, so now it's unmuted. But yeah, that, that uh -huh. phrase you said is, is very powerful, that, that, that we live better today than billionaires 40 years ago. And I think that's quite shocking to some people, but, but there's a lot of truth in that. And, you know, that, that idea of gratitude is really powerful. I mean, one of the things I'm very grateful for, before we, we started recording, we were talking about how, how I'd been in the Amazon for the last uh, decade or so. And uh, just this simple thing of having a roof over your head. You know, for all of mm. my life, it was always something I took for granted. But in the Amazon, <clears throat> the roofs are traditionally made of of thatch, of, of, of you know, palm leaf. And uh, they require constant maintenance. And, and if you don't constantly maintain them, and it rains a lot in the jungle, you're sleeping one night and you get rained on. And yeah. uh, and it very yeah. much made me very grateful for you know for this simple thing that, that most people and you know for sure there are people who don't have a roof over their head, but the the vast majority of us do. And you know even something like that, it's, it, there's a lot of gratitude that can be there. Mm -hmm. And one of the really interesting things, you know, you were mentioning this idea of technologies and, and, and one of the, the technologies that, that you, you really seem to be delving into and, and very interestingly because of your background, you know, I think you were probably one of the first people 
uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, but to actually do your master's studying MDMA. And um, I, I'm sure many people listening to this podcast are familiar with MDMA, but I'm sure many people are not as well. Um, so maybe if this is kind of a, a big and, and multifaceted question, but what was it that originally got you interested in, in MDMA? You know, especially because I, I think at the time you were doing it, it, it was not very well known. So what was it that, that sparked your interest in that? Um, and, and I guess also maybe you can describe to the audience what, what is that for the people who aren't aware? Um, and, and, and how, how and why you describe that as a technology, because I, I think for some people, that's kind of a foreign concept. It's something like, you know, a pharmaceutical drug could be described as a, as a technology because, you know, even mm -hmm. traditionally, and, and maybe people would be more familiar with this, but, but a lot of these traditional plant medicines, if people aren't familiar with them, they're often described by groups that work with them as a very specific technology. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's start from the beginning. MDMA, which is also often called ecstasy or molly, uh, it's been around and popular since the 1970s where it was used by psychotherapists as a, a drug to help people in psychotherapy. Um, I did my master's degree on it in 1984 where I showed that it can be very helpful for helping people with trauma. Um, this year, uh, the FDA is likely going to approve it as a medically prescribed drug. Uh, it will be the first time in the FDA's entire history that they've taken an illegal drug and made it a medically prescribed drug. And they're doing this because the results from decades of studies show that this is perhaps the most powerful uh, psychological change agent medicine they've ever come across and it can heal potentially millions of people of trauma, anxiety, uh, phobias, and all kinds of other things as well. And it also is used as a therapeutic drug for helping couples feel um, more connected and solve couples' issues. So I'm a psychotherapist, and I, for the last 40 years, have led maybe 700 or 800 uh, journeys with this medicine with my clients uh, in an underground movement. Um, but because it's now getting more accepted, uh, I can, I wrote a book called Ecstasy as Medicine, and it's uh, becoming very popular. I teach the largest MDMA training course in the world. Uh, and if people want to find out about that, they can look at mdmatraining.net. And in that course, I teach therapists and coaches and people how to lead this type of therapy. Uh, what we're finding is that often people can uh, make dramatic shifts in their life in a single day, overcome trauma, anxiety, depression. And therefore, I think of it as a technology because the technology is really just a better way of doing things. You can go to a therapist for three or four years, and that will probably help you. Or you can take MDMA with a trained guide and in one day get three or four years worth of therapy. So a lot of technology is really about a faster way of doing things. You know, we, we could um, 
send information by walking the information from one place to another, or and that might take you know five years, or we can just hit a button and the information is traveled over the internet and it takes five seconds. So technology is really how do you get people to experience more love and peace and put them in a in a state where you can kind of change fundamental things of how they are in the world. And what I do when I guide people on ecstasy is I get them to uh, let go of obstacles in the way of peace and let go of some of their psychological challenges using certain therapeutic techniques. That's a long answer to your question, but um, that's a little bit of what I've been doing. And uh, it's very satisfying because to change people in a day is just a very moving experience. And I used to do this only in person, but when the uh, pandemic hit, I started to do it over Zoom. And I found that it works even better over Zoom, which is hard to believe, but it works better over Zoom than in person. So now it's really going to be available to millions of people versus maybe dozens of people. I'm hoping it changes the world in some way. Hmm. And the, are you familiar or, or could you give some, some background on, on why MDMA was, uh, was made illegal in the first place? Was it during that same kind of movement where, where a lot of drugs were, were classified as Schedule, uh, schedule 1? Well, it was made illegal during uh, the Ronald Reagan Just Say No period. And um, actually, the uh, the the drug uh, DEA at the time said it should be remained legal, and they had a lot of psychiatrists uh, testifying in Congress that it's a breakthrough medication and it should remain legal. But there was one guy heading the FDA at the time who uh, just overruled all the information and said, "I'm making it illegal." Um, and the reason really had to do with that just made people feel too good, you know, and they were afraid that everybody was going to start taking it. And in fact, that did happen to some extent. You know, people started taking it in the 80s as a dance party drug. And you can use MDMA that way or ecstasy that way. But using ecstasy as a dance party drug is a little bit like using a laptop as a doorstop. You know, a laptop will work as a doorstop, uh, but there's better uses for a laptop. And ecstasy will work as a dance party drug, but there's much better uses for ecstasy. So when the FDA actually did these studies, you know, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, they found that was just almost like ridiculously effective in overcoming psychological challenges. So uh, that's why they're uh, likely to make it uh, a legal drug sometime later this year. It's interesting. You you said that during the pandemic you began working over Zoom and that it was actually more effective. Uh, do, do you have any insights, or, or you, you found reasons of why why that is? I do have guesses. You know, um, it takes about. $10 million and 10 years to do a good study like that. So since I don't have that money, <laughs> I, I can only give you my guess. But, 
you know, a lot of the people coming to me have had had some kind of trauma. Let's say, you know, a woman has been uh, raped, you know, coming to my office, a guy who she barely knows or, or just met and giving them a drug uh, is not the safest way to heal somebody of trauma. Whereas on Zoom, in a person's own home, they feel incredibly safe. They feel incredibly grounded. The medicine also helps them to feel safe and at peace. And when people feel completely safe and open, that's when you can really get into their brain and, and start changing things in a way that's going to be beneficial to them. So a lot of times as a therapist, I have to spend a year or two creating that safety uh, in my office. But on MDMA, um, it generally takes about five minutes. Hmm. Do you uh, do you kind of uh, explain to people, or is it something that's not really part of your interest? Kind of the the chemistry behind MDMA and what's actually happening in in the brain or the body, like how it's working more on the the, the physiological level. Well, I usually give a brief explanation. Um, the MDMA reduces blood flow. <clears throat> to uh, the amygdala part of the brain, which is responsible for our fear. So when that fear response is down, you can look at challenging situations from your past or challenging subject matters, you know, uh, sex, money, those types of things, without the associated anxiety to it. So if somebody has had a traumatic experience, and on MDMA, I bring them back to that, they neutralize that negative experience so that the trauma is no longer uh, affecting them. It's been neutralized, and therefore, in their daily life, they don't have those trauma triggers or they don't have the anxiety or fear come up along where it used to really create a problem in their life. And and is that pretty universal, or or is that somewhat dependent on the person as well? I mean, are most people who have uh, kind of fear responses or trauma responses able to go into those without kind of reactivating them, or, or are there some cases where uh, kind of other other ways need to be worked with before someone is ready for that? Mm -hmm. I've seen it be about seven, about one hundred percent. So let's say of the eight hundred journeys I've done, maybe one person. Uh, didn't notice that so much. Th their fear still came up, but that's pretty rare. And, you know, for those who haven't taken MDMA um, or ecstasy, it's important to know that it it's not like the other psychedelics where you hallucinate, you're out of control. You know, you just kind of feel like your best, most loving, most open self. In fact, uh, my parents were wondering why I was so enthusiastic about this medicine. And I said, well, you know, the only way to really know is to try it. And to my surprise, they said they would try it. And so I told, you know, I gave them some pills. I told them how to create a nice setting for themselves. And, you know, said, you know, take it when it feels right. Well, a year later, I asked them if they had taken it. And they said, uh, yeah, they had taken it. And I was very curious. I said, well, what happened? And they said, well, nothing happened. The, the drug didn't take effect. And I thought that was rather strange. So I said, well, 
tell me exactly what happened that night. And they said, well, you know, we took the drug and we waited like 15 minutes and nothing happened. Well, it ends up it takes about 45 minutes for it to take effect. So I said, well, once the drug, quote, didn't take effect, what'd you do? And they said, well, it ended up being a wonderful night. We ended up talking about how much we love each other and how grateful we were for our lives. And then we talked about the purpose of human life on earth. And then we cuddled on the couch. It ended up being the best night of our 40-year marriage. The only disappointment was that the drug never took effect. And so I'm laughing this whole time, Jason. And uh, and I said, well, that's what the drug does. And he said, no, no, we didn't feel any drug effect, you know. So it can be um, a little bit invisible to people, but it has a, it just brings you back to your most loving, open self. And uh, that can be really helpful for knowing how to get back there in the future. Because once you know what the target is in life, then it's easy to steer people back to that peace and love within. So I spend a lot of time with my clients helping them get back to the, quote, ecstasy state just without the medicine. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. You've used the word trauma a number of times. And um, I think for, for a long time, that word was really only used more in kind of clinical settings, especially with, with like something like PTSD. Uh, but it seems to be much more in the vocabulary of people now. Um, what, what does that word mean to you? Uh, you know, kind of on the one end of the spectrum, you have people like Gabor Mate who really focus on that and say everyone has trauma. Uh, mm-hmm. And then on the other end, you, you have people who would say, well, it, it's only in you know, very uh, extreme cases like concussions or, or war, things like that. Um, what is your understanding of trauma? And, and, and maybe like, how do you see that manifest in the people that come to you? Well, one way of looking at trauma is anything, any experience you had where you couldn't really digest the experience fully so that it kind of is staying with you. It's leading to some kind of conditioning or programming so that when you're in a similar situation, you're not reacting to the situation in front of you. You're more being uh, reacting to a previous trauma or intense experience that you didn't uh, fully uh, digest. So let's say, um, in my case, I had a stepfather who used to uh, scream at me a lot and sometimes beat me up. Um, so I'm very sensitive. Uh, in the past, I was a lot more sensitive than now. Anytime somebody yelled at me, I would, you know, shake. And uh, it would be very disturbing. It would take me a long time to recover. Uh, I wasn't reacting to, you know, if my wife raised my voice, I'm not in any physical danger, but it would bring back that whole time where I felt like I, my life was at stake. So that's an example of trauma, or people have it in regard to a lot of things where they they feel um, exaggerated feelings in a moment due to some kind of uh, intense encounter in the past. And with ecstasy, you can neutralize those feelings from the past so that when the, quote, trauma triggers come up, somebody yelling at you or some sexual experience or 
or some other type of experience that you're not reacting in an exaggerated way, you can maintain feeling peaceful and and uh, open, um, even though it mimics an experience from the past. The the title of uh, of the book is is overcoming trauma, anxiety, and depression. We, do you do you think anxiety and depression? in a way have a similar root cause that it's it's a it's a traumatic event in our life often something specific or, or something accumulated that's also leading to those as well well what uh, first the the that's the subtitle of the book the the title is ecstasy as medicine um i do see that most anxiety and some depression has to do with uh our past um, but even when it doesn't have to do with our past, when somebody is very open uh, emotionally and not defensive, you can kind of get a better picture of what the obstacles are that are in the way of them being um, happier and more at ease. So, so for somebody who maybe has been depressed, they'll see that it's due to their lack of purpose. And then we talk about purpose. Or they might see that it's due to that they can't express their feelings. So I'll get them to express their feelings. So it's a very good tool, um, even when you're not dealing with trauma, for for uh, accelerating our ability to see what's in the way of peace, love, and joy, and hopefully remove those obstacles very quickly. Uh, I often give people certain practices that during an integration session, like a week later, they practice those things that will help them to deal with whatever their psychological issue is. Are, are you familiar with with any of the the studies that have been done with um, MDMA? I mean, it, um, I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head. I mean, uh, for sure, there's there, there's been a number with psilocybin. I mean, Johns Hopkins has done a lot of work, um, uh, but it seems like you know both of those MDMA and and psilocybin, um, the, the at least the, the preliminary studies and, and the studies that have been done, I mean, the, the results almost seem extraordinary. I mean, uh, just far and above away uh, techniques that have been used in the past. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why uh, it's taken so long to get FDA approval is that the studies were so good and so amazing, the results that the FDA required them to do the studies again. That's another $10 million in 10 years. So, yeah, the studies have shown that they're remarkably effective. And um, I can't wait until it's available, you know, to a larger audience. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a beginning of a whole new way of um, healing people because things like antidepressants, which are a $20 billion a year industry, have been shown in most cases to be only 1% more effective than placebos. Whereas things like MDMA and psilocybin have been shown to be 30 to 40 times more effective than placebos. And uh, therefore, they can probably help a lot more people. 
Um, and one of the reasons why it, it took so long is that big pharma was always trying to keep these drugs under wrap, meaning they sabotage studies, they uh, put out information that was false because they stand to lose, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars over time since these drugs are not patented. They cannot make money from their use. Do, do you think, I mean, because that's, you know, it, it's obviously a pretty bold statement and, um, but, uh, you know, I, I, it does seem like certain, I don't know, maybe groups seem to be waking up maybe to more of these ideas. I mean, I, I think certainly the pandemic perhaps made people question certain motives, government's motives, pharmaceutical motives, and, and obviously things are never black and white. I mean, people working within these industries can have good intentions and, and obviously pharmaceuticals can help save a lot of people too. Um, but do you think there's more awareness uh, just of that idea that you were speaking of, that, that, that so much of these industries is built on profit? And, and maybe not even that that's inherently a bad thing, but that it does impose limitations. And, and if we don't understand those limitations, we may not understand what the results are, are, are kind of being, being fed to us. Or even the options that we have are, are very limited within those, those, uh, the confinement of those systems. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we live in a capitalist society and there's advantages and disadvantages to everything, including, you know, these medicines that uh, not everybody should take them. You know, they don't work well with, say, antidepressants, if somebody's on antidepressants. Um, but, you know, Big Pharma has, has put out a lot of stuff and saved a lot of people, but they're also trying to make as much money as possible. And uh, there's there's evidence that some of the initial studies were sabotaged to avoid uh, this being out there in a bigger way. Um, but also, you know, as they study these drugs now, they're trying to come up with patentable versions of them that might be even better. We'll see, you know, and, uh, um, but when you have money or a lot of money on your side, that does tend to, uh, distort certain things. Mm -hmm. Are are there any studies that you could point to to people if people are interested in in learning more about specific studies that have been done with MDMA? Well, they can go to um there's an organization which you probably know Jason called MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. You can go to maps.org and they uh have a section where they detail a lot of the studies, the phase 3 trials that were done and uh, you can get into how much more effective they were than placebos for things like PTSD. They're also doing new studies on the effect of, of ecstasy for healing things like addiction and loneliness. And the results so far have been really incredible in that area as well. So my hope is that we'll soon be treating things like uh, opioid addiction or alcoholism with things like MDMA-assisted therapy. Uh, but, you know, these studies take a long time. Um, it's taken 25 years to get some of these studies uh, to a point where the FDA can now approve the medicine. And um, in 2017, the FDA gave uh, MDMA breakthrough therapy status. 
which helped to accelerate the process a little bit. And that's why we should be getting it. Every, uh, they, they think in August of 2024, they will be taking their first illegal drug in the history of the FDA and making it uh, legal for certain people, which is quite exciting. It's, it's interesting because a lot of these, um, these substances, I mean, similarly, psilocybin or ibogaine uh, seem to be used in, in very similar ways of, of overcoming trauma, anxiety, depression, addiction, loneliness, lack of purpose. Um, do you think there's a, a certain mechanism that's, uh, that's happening with all of these? Because they, they, they seem to, to be getting it at very specific things. I mean, even something like loneliness. I mean, it, uh, you know, some people have even described the, the time we're living in as kind of an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, it seems like it's this interesting phenomena where these plants are, or these substances are kind of reemerging in, in a time where, you know, also we're becoming more aware of these things like loneliness, of trauma, of anxiety. Um, but, but you yeah, know, a lot of these are, things seem to have a similar mechanism. Well, you're you're quite correct there, Jason. Uh, in ecstasy as medicine, I, I talk about that. There's something called uh, a critical learning period that whether the drug is ecstasy or LSD or ketamine or psilocybin or even 5-MeO-DMT, all of which I talk about in the book, um, that there's they open up a what's called a critical learning period in the brain. And that's similar to when we're young, we have a very big aperture or, or opening in our brain for learning. So it's very easy to learn a new language when you're one years old. You know, it's not so easy when you're 50 years old. So what these medicines do, or these uh, sacred plants do, is they, a, they stimulate this part of the brain that uh, opens to new learning at an accelerated rate. And that's why you can change people uh, and change some of their behavior and beliefs very quickly using some of these medicines. Are, are are you familiar with kind of the origin of MDMA, how how it was developed or, or synthesized, and, and how it started being worked with? Yeah, it was actually invented by a pharmaceutical company Merck back in 1912 as a uh, weight loss drug, potentially, or uh, a heart, heart medication, but uh, it wasn't that successful at that. And it wasn't until the 1970s that it started to come out that this could be used in therapy. And a guy named Alexander Shulgin, who you might know, uh, used it and reported that it was really great for relationships, you know, if you wanted to connect with someone. It's often been called the hug drug or the love drug. And he helped. Uh, make some. He was a chemist and he gave it to a lot of psychotherapists. <clears throat> and the therapists were saying, This is like the greatest thing ever. You know, we can do three years of therapy in one day. And uh, then once the cat was out of the bag, uh, you know, when I was doing my research, I was thinking, Well, how are we going to abuse this drug? Because it's not addictive. In fact, if you use it a lot, it stops working. So I thought, well, how can you abuse love? You know, how can you abuse? <laughs> and I never thought of 
that they would use as an all night dance party drug. But, you know, as, as things go, that's not uh, a terrible thing. But when it became a dance party drug, it ended up that people lost the idea that it was a psychotherapy medicine. And it wasn't until uh, the organization MAPS was founded in 1986 and raised $100 million to do the studies that people saw, oh, wait, this stuff really works for for overcoming a lot of psychological challenges. And as you know, Jason, we are in a time where mental health crisis is horrible, and we could really use a new technology that works really effectively. What What are your feelings? Uh, because I, I think a lot of people who find use and, and utility for a, a lot of these medicines like MDMA, you know, it seems like similarly for marijuana, it, the, the impetus to start it was under the guise of medicine. Um, but then you have certain people argue, because you also mentioned it, it can be used for, for recreation. Um, what do you think is that balance of, of you know, and, and is there even a difference between that idea of using something as a medicine versus uh, recreation. I mean, often medicine, there's there's a certain kind of ritual or, or authorities who kind of dose it and prescribe it. Recreation tends to be a bit a bit more loose, you know, kind of under your own guidance or the guidance of a, a different set of kind of authority figures. But do you do you see a place for both of those, or do you see this uh, much more in the, the the medicine aspect? Well, there is a place for both of them, and people will use it for both. And as I mentioned before, you can use a laptop as a doorstop, but there are better uses for a laptop and there's better uses for ecstasy. Um, you know, I've been to a rave. It was a lot of fun. But if you can use something for the highest purpose, in this case, getting healing yourself of of trauma and helping you open up to more love, I think that's a better use. And um in in the Ecstasy as Medicine book, I talk about different ways you can guide yourself or a friend, but having a professional guide is often the best way to make the greatest use of it. You know, that if you set it up really well, you might heal something that helps you for the rest of your life. Whereas if you use it to have a good time dancing, well, you've used it for, and you had a good time for one night. Um, so that's why I really have focused on training um, people on how to use it well uh, through my MDMA training. I've now taught hundreds of people how they can either, if they're a therapist, use it in their psychotherapy practice, but even if they're not a therapist, how they can help their friends or how they can use dig deep in themselves and use it in a therapeutic way on themselves. It's interesting because you're, you are a psychotherapist um, and, and a lot of the direction that these substances seem to be moving into is under the guise of some sort of, again, psycho, you know, psychedelic or, or medicine-based psychotherapy session. Um, do you think that role of psychotherapy is essential, or do you think there's there's other modalities that can incorporate these medicines that are that are equally useful, or perhaps even more or, or less useful? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think there's other modalities. Um, you know, people go to uh, Peru. Uh, obviously, you're quite familiar with this or the Amazon jungle, and they use it in a ritualized form for healing. And that's been done for thousands of years. I think understanding how indigenous cultures use these medicines is valuable and important, that not everything needs to be psychologized. Um, and uh, you can use them for different purposes. It's a little bit like a Swiss army knife, you know. MDMA can be good for focusing on expanded spiritual states. It can be useful for having working out issues with a, a partner in a relationship. It can be used for trauma, depression. You know, it's, it's a little bit like a Swiss army knife. And that it's important to not think that any one approach is the best for everybody. You know, people need different things at different times in their life. So um, I'm quite familiar with indigenous sacred medicine practices. And if a person comes to me with that background or that need, um, I like to be able to uh, provide for them that type of experience versus somebody coming to me for marital therapy, which is a different way of using MDMA. Mm -hmm. So and I should when, say that when, in, my in my training, I try to go through all these modalities because the more somebody knows who can guide others, uh, the more use they are going to be to their, their clients in, in the healing process. Mm -hmm. So how does that look like if, if someone is interested in working with you or um, maybe just someone in general? Like, what does that look like when, when someone reaches out to you? Is there certain preparatory information that you send them? Is there preparatory work they need to do? What, what does the session look like? Is there an integration period? Like, maybe you can walk through people how that looks. Sure. People usually. Um find me, you know, through the book or, or uh, whatever, and they email me. I send them a bunch of information about how I work, what I charge. Uh, we usually do a, a one-hour discovery call over Zoom, where I ask them about their background, what, what success looks like, uh, what their psychological issues are. Um, and then we set a date where I'm able to spend five hours with them uh, on the medicine. Often nowadays, that's on Zoom rather than in person. Uh, during that session, we explore their issues. We explore um, how they can kind of create a breadcrumb trail back to this experience when they're not on the medicine, you know, like how to open up to more love and peace in their daily life. And we then we schedule about a week later another uh, time for integration, where we take the insights and practices that we thought were most useful to them during the session and talk about how to put them into their daily life. I did create a motivational method that allows people to stay motivated for a very long period of time. You know, in any endeavor, the key to success is to is two steps. Do the right thing and do it consistently. So if you want to lose weight, you know, exercise or eat less and do it consistently. If you want to have a great relationship, you know, communicate well, give appreciations, do it consistently. 
But most people don't know how to be consistent for a long period of time. So I used to be a motivational speaker. So I developed a motivational method. It takes about two minutes a week that is really unsurpassed in helping people stay motivated to do the things that they know would make their life better. And those things are usually very clear to someone after they have uh, had an MDMA session. And kind of what is the direction that you see this work going? Do you you think the the way you're doing it, I mean, obviously you you believe in the way you're doing it, but do you think that's that kind of format that you describe is going to become kind of a standard procedure or do you see this work going in, in, in different directions as well? Well, one of the reasons why I'm leading the largest training in the world right now online is that um, it works phenomenally well. Uh, there is another approach, though. The MAPS organization, in order to get FDA approval, they wanted to just see if giving somebody a pill could cure them of PTSD. So they don't actually do therapy while people are on the medicine. What they do is they give people a blindfold and headphones to listen to music and hope that just the pill itself will help them overcome their challenges. And the results show that it does. But I don't think that's the best way of using this medicine. I actually do therapy, a lot of different modalities, a lot of different techniques to help people at an accelerated rate. But I think both of those approaches are valid. Different people will want to try one approach and other people the other approach. I think my approach gets much better results, but I can't prove that because that would take, once again, $10 million in 10 years, and uh, we haven't done those studies. Um, But, you know, the MAPS didn't do this because they thought it was the best approach. They did it to get FDA approval. You know, they're trying to get FDA approval, which stands for Food and Drug Administration, not the Food and Therapy Administration. So the FDA wanted to see if you just took a pill, if that would help you. And it does. But if you take a pill and you do therapy, I think you do get much better results. Uh, You know, people can find out about the training at mdmatraining.net, in which I go into the details of the types of things that I go over as uh, the techniques and the, the approach that I use that I think is going to reach millions of people someday because interest is exploding and um, there's a a great need. The other thing is that uh, when this gets FDA approval, the therapy is going to cost about $14,000 in clinics. And that's a lot of money. That's not available to many people. Whereas the people on training, they tend to charge about $1,000. So that becomes, you know, available to a lot of people to overcome your your trauma or your depression or your anxiety for a thousand bucks in a day uh, or a couple days. That's that's pretty reasonable. So I think it's going to have a major effect on how people interact with psychology and therapy. There's, I think there's at least is it maybe one or two 
now certified programs? Is it the California Institute of Integral Studies? Are they doing uh, something with with certifying people with MDMA? Um, there's no legal certification yet anywhere. So California Institute of Integral Studies does a course like mine, except it it costs ten times as much. <laughs> I hear it's a good course, but it's expensive. Um, and Maps used to do a course. They only charge five times as much as mine, but that was an excellent course, but they're no longer teaching it. So um, there's not many courses now that are out there. Uh, therefore, uh, there's limited choice. I think in the future there will be more courses out there. But no courses actually certify certifies people because uh, the FDA has not allowed that as of yet. And do you you think when the FDA, if and when they do approve the therapy, there'll there'll be a lot more kind of certification that begins to happen from that? I think it will start to happen. It'll take some time. Uh, the MAPS organization will be the only organization that will be able to certify courses. And in fact, I do have many people from MAPS taking my course and they love it. So that was likely to happen. But my guess is that that's probably a couple of years off before there's a a legal certification happening. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things about uh, my course is that we don't do anything illegal, so we avoid all kinds of legal problems. You know, when you, you, you can talk to people over Zoom, that's totally legal. What you talk to them about doesn't matter. That's totally legal. You know, the fact that they are on, on MDMA, that's their business. And and so if, if that's the case, when, when someone comes to you, how how do they usually procure the MDMA? Well, sometimes they have a connection, but when they don't, there's a uh, app called Signal, which is a fully encrypted app, and I give them the phone number of somebody uh, who uh, they can get the MDMA from. So they reach out to that person on Signal. And they get the MDMA mailed to them. And there's no legal implications in, in that regard of, of giving someone's phone number out with the intent to, to purchase or distribute? Well, I'm allowed to give people's phone numbers out. What they do with the phone number is up to them. Um, I don't have any contact with this person. So uh, it has not run into any legal problems. And, you know, the law enforcement is not really focused on one person getting one pill of MDMA uh, for healing purposes when 120,000 people are dying of fentanyl every single, uh, every single year in America. So uh, it's a matter of where they put their energy. You could say that the person getting the MDMA is doing something illegal, but there's never been a case where in that process anybody was at legal risk or got arrested for it. So I'm pretty confident that that's not a problem uh, since it hasn't ever occurred. When when people are working with MDMA, are there, uh, because I remember even when I was younger, it was often you'd hear this idea that MDMA, like it was amazing, but then the next day you you felt horrible. Um, is that a mechanism of it, or is that coming from something that's that's tainted or impure? Or there are there also other medications that can help to alleviate that? Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, in in the book Ecstasy as Medicine, I have a whole thing about contraindications and up to eight things people can do to mitigate those sometimes after effects. It ends up that most of the after effects are due to impurities in the medicine. So 40% of the MDMA sold in America is mixed with other stuff, and that can create problems. Uh, When clients of mine get the medicine uh, on signal, I know that they're getting the pure stuff, but that will help alleviate a lot of the after effects. But still, some people you know, are impacted for sure the next day. I'd say a third of people are. And there are things like vitamins that uh, I mentioned in my book that people can take to either lessen or eliminate those after effects. And they're all listed. There's eight of them. And, um, you know, things like vitamin C or CoQ10, but there's a couple of esoteric ones that have uh, studies now that show that they do they do actually eliminate most of those after effects if there are going to be any. And of course, you know, a lot of people get a tight jaw when they take MDMA. If you take uh, 300 to 400 milligrams of magnesium glycinate, that seems to eliminate that effect as well. Hmm. And have you ever experienced, uh, I mean, because, you know, one of the ideas with taking it recreationally is is that you're not really under guidance. Um, are, are there situations where you've been working with people where they, they feel overwhelmed or, or terror or, you know, some some experience that's arising where they may not be able to navigate that for themselves? Yeah, you know, much more so with the other psychedelics. Uh, I don't do any psychedelic therapy other than MDMA therapy over Zoom because the other ones are much less predictable, whereas MDMA is extremely predictable. Of the, say, 750 journeys I've led, only one time was there really a problem. And um, I always have uh, somebody near that client, you know, within a a 15-minute drive that if they need you know, support somehow, they can get it. Uh, I've never used that, but it's another safety thing that I insist on. And MDMA is very predictable. Now, some people, when they first come onto the medicine, they feel a little discombobulated or uh, they might feel a little weird. And just, you know, telling them that that lasts only 10 or 15 minutes and soon they'll be feeling you know, high and good is usually enough to calm them down if they're feeling a little bit uh, worried about that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting things is you mentioned it can help couples. Is that usually through <clears throat> uh, like a joint session where both people are working with MDMA or is it something that, that one person can do and just in their own internal process, it's with the intention of, of working on a relationship, they're also able to to experience healing with that? Usually both people in a couple are on MDMA. I have done it where only one person is. And it's it's just really miraculous what happens in that, um, you know, people who have been fighting for years 
and not been able to work out certain things can work on work it out in like a couple of hours. It's a very moving experience. And, um, one of my favorite things to do, uh, but you know, not many couples have two people who want to do the medicine. So I'm actually going to be doing a, a 30 week training with something called the shift network later this year that is primarily working with MDMA, MDMA and couples. And it will be the only workshop like that ever done before. So I'm quite excited about that because I do think that, you know, a lot of people are having trouble in their relationships and if they can come up with this breakthrough medicine that helps them that, you know, that's, that's really important. Um, Many years ago, I was on the Oprah show for a book I had written called uh, Communication Miracles for Couples. So I ended up doing a lot of couples therapy. Uh, the book became a bestseller. And when it did, you know, I got a lot of practice. And I saw that, you know, most couples are having a hard time nowadays. And, and uh, if they can do the MDMA therapy in the right way, you can... Uh, Literally create a, a, a miracle in a day. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting because one of the things you've, you've said you're really interested in is kind of like finding these technologies that are very beneficial to people. Um, and of all of those, you know, the, MDA, M, the MDMA therapy now seems to be, you know, one of, if not your primary focus. I mean, of all mm -hmm. of the techniques you found, do you, do you find that to be kind of a, a panacea or something that's just really able to have a profound effect and that's why you've chosen to work with it um i mean i guess i guess the question is more like what what drew you specifically to that of, of all of these therapies and practices you've you've encountered uh, that there must be something in that that you found quite quite revelational in a way yeah you know i'm always looking for how what's the the biggest amount of change in the quickest way you know so I'm, i have that bias for sure and that's not what everybody's looking for so i don't think there's one thing that is a panacea for everyone you know there's no one religion that works for everyone there's no one meditation that works for everyone but i have seen that mdma uh probably works faster and better than anything else that i've seen so i put my focus there and now that it's on the cusp of getting FDA approval, I felt comfortable being more uh, out there with my discoveries because I probably have done more MDMA, led more MDMA journeys than anybody else on earth, you know, just because I did my master's degree on this 40 years ago. Um, and so I feel like because of that position, uh, teaching it to more people, and and using it and putting it out there would be my contribution to helping uh, the world situation in my very, very small uh, way. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there other technologies or practices that you've come across more recently that you also find quite, a, quite effective um, and that you, you also try and share with people? Definitely. You know, um, just because, just as our smartphone is getting better every year, what I call inner technologies are getting better every year because now we have science. We can see what actually works and what doesn't. 
as opposed to, yeah, I think, you know, you should do this breath meditation. Well, studies show that doesn't work. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that one. Um, so there are other uh, courses that I recommend to people, um, not mine, and, and I think a couple of them are great. Uh, there are certainly many methods that I recommend in my other books, like, you know, I wrote the book, The Enlightenment Project, in which I give what I consider the best methods for awakening. You know, just to give your audience one example, um, this one Harvard researcher found that there was one meditation that seemed to be have more uh, effect in terms of helping people become more awake and enlightened than any other. And it's a very simple technique. What you do is you write a list of the 30, 40, or 50 people who you've most cared about in the world over your life. It might even be people who you once loved that you broke up with, but you know, at one time you were, you were in love with them. And then you spend about a minute or two thinking about and feeling what you loved about them with each person. You do that with you know, 20, 30 people, and you're spending 40 minutes in the state of pure love. Well, it ends up the state of pure love is very, very powerful. Just like MDMA, which brings you to that state, is very, very powerful. Love does heal. And uh, doing that meditation was shown to have enormous effects on health, on your consciousness, and on influencing even how you felt for the rest of the day. So I, I do believe that there's a lot of increasing data showing what works really well for people and what does not. And I, I try to follow the data. It's interesting because just today I was I was speaking to someone who was uh, speaking about the the Russian Orthodox Christian tradition and and he was saying that that's actually a, a daily practice for them is they have a list and it's you know twenty thirty names of people who uh, they they pray for every day and they they practice love gratitude for that person thinking good things about them uh, and it's a, it's apparently a big part of their traditions. So. <laughs> Fantastic, good good to, good for them. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, great, Jonathan. I I think we're we're probably getting close to our wrapping up time. Um, you 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 said you're. I mean, you you have the the book that you wrote, um, and that you're also doing this this training. Um, is there any kind of particular person? Is it just if someone hears that and they're interested in that, then they're a good candidate? Or are there certain things you you look for when when uh, you're you're kind of taking on people, or, or, or who would that course uh, be be well suited for? Well, that's a great question. You know, uh, other courses often require that you have like a PhD or something. I make no actual credential requirement. There is an application process, and we want to make sure that people have certain character traits. The number one would be like caring for people and, and curiosity and desire to help people, you know, because those people can learn the techniques. There are some therapists, obviously, are good candidates or coaches, but some of them are not good candidates because they want everybody to go into, you know, Freudian theory. And, and if they're not open to new learning, you know, then they're not appropriate for the course. So it's really a more of a type of person that I'm looking for. And uh, there's an application process, uh, but most people, 
who are interested in this field are caring people who are into personal growth. So um, we don't have to eliminate that many people um, and we don't do it based on credentials, but more on, on their, their real desire to help people because that's what this is all about. And, you know, I mentioned it before, but people can learn all about it at mdmatraining.net. And then kind of conversely to that, if someone is interested in, in working with MDMA, um, are there are there kind of qualities? I mean, if are you generally working with people who kind of self-identify as having trauma or anxiety, or is it often, can it also be people who are maybe just curious about the medicine and they're looking for a, a mystical or spiritual experience, or, or maybe they're just curious of having a different experience? Are there are there kind of different uh, types of people who are coming to you to, to work with that? Definitely. I'd say maybe one-fourth are couples. Uh, one-fourth are people with trauma. One-fourth are people with other psychological issues like anxiety, depression, loneliness, things like that. And one-fourth are people who want spiritual acceleration and more love and peace in daily life. So do people do come for different things. And I try to uh, steer them towards what they view as success because I don't want it to be my agenda. I want it to be their agenda. And um, that, you know, because MDMA is very versatile, uh, you can use it for different things. Mm -hmm. And and what is the, kind of that line for you of um, kind of that role of, of, of how much you step in or, or guide? Is it something you just, you use very intuitively or there, there's kind of like rules or procedures that you've set for yourself? And, and I imagine, would that be something that you focus on in the training as well? Like what, what is the, really that, the role of that person who's administering the medicine? Yeah, we go a lot into that in the training. You know, there's over 30 hours of material of me lecturing and practice sessions and various techniques. But there's also the philosophy that you met. Uh, it's called uh, let the medicine lead, meaning, you know, you can have your agenda, you can, the client can have their agenda, you can have all these different methods, but you want to be present with what is happening and, and always attend to that first, because uh, that's, the medicine almost seems to have, and you probably know this, Jason, with plant medicines, that it seems like they have their own intelligence as to what they'll bring up. And sometimes that's better than what you or I could have come up with. And so we work with that. And if uh, that's not coming up, then we work with what we talked about in our, in our uh, discovery call as to the issues that they want to deal with. Hmm. Well, great, Jonathan. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. Is, is there anything that we, we didn't touch on that you'd like to, to address before we end this? Uh, I think we did a really good job, and yes, great questions. Um, and, you know, I would encourage people to learn about it, however they want to learn about it. Uh, people are welcome to email me if they have questions. Uh, my email's in the book. It'll probably be on your link or whatever. Um, but, you know, we're here to explore, and 2024, if nothing else, is going to be stressful. So we need better ways to find the peace within 
in order to deal with the increasingly complex and stressful world. And however that can work for you, I encourage people to do that as much as possible. Good. Well, great. So we'll, we'll put the email in the show notes. And, and then is there, it looks like maybe you have a, a couple of websites, but is, is findinghappiness.com the, the best way to, to well, go actually, to you? The, or? The, the best one, if they go to xtcasmedicine.com and put in their email address, uh, they get a lot of free stuff. Uh, how to avoid bad psychedelic trips, uh, 12 questions that lead to instant intimacy, a discount code for the training. Um, that's at ecstasyasmedicine.com. And then uh, if they want to learn about the training and apply for that, they can go to mdmatraining.net. And both those, uh, you can contact me. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. That, that, that was a pleasure. And, and thank you for doing the work you're doing and, and sharing. I, I think it's, it's really important. And kind of as we were saying, it's very much medicine of this time and, and things that are really needed. And, and as you said, I think any technique that's effective and you know, certainly 40 times more effective than the norm is, is very much needed. And, and the more people doing that in, in a good way, I, I think the better. So thank you very much. And uh, I'll, I'll put those links in the show notes. And, and again, thank you for your time and your work. And, uh, and, and I wish you all the best. Yeah, thanks for the great questions, Jason. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, I think Jonathan's a really interesting guy and, and able to speak uh, to this work with, with kind of psychedelic assisted therapy, specifically with MDMA, um, in, a, in, a, in a really good way. And, and again, not just a, a theoretical way, but uh, speaking from a place of, of many years of experience. So I hope you all enjoyed and got something out of that episode. As always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you uh, can sign up for. Each of those tiers gives you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all of the patrons, to all of the people supporting that way, as always, uh, I really appreciate your help and thank you very much for that. And if you're able to do that, if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, that's a, a really good way to give back. Uh, if you're not able to do that, uh, as always, helping with the algorithms is uh, really helpful. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions, comments in the comment section, all of those things really help. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leaving a starred rating and a short review. So uh, I think that's it for this episode. Uh, my next episode should be with a really uh, fascinating Russian guy named Branislav. Uh, we talked a lot about Taoism, um, about his work, uh, kind of, he's written a number of books of translating these ancient Taoist texts like the Tao Te Ching, like the Yellow Emperor's um, Treatise on Medicine. Chuangzu's work. Uh, he's also done a lot of work uh, with, with bringing tea more out into uh, the public, which is also very powerful plant medicine. Um, also working with mushrooms, Amanita muscaria. So it was a really fascinating conversation, a lot of gems in there. So that should be coming out. Um, who else do I have on the horizon? I have an interesting guy coming on speaking about breath work, uh, another author coming on. Um, some of the upcoming guests are, are kind of slipping my mind, but as always, I, I really hope to bring on some fascinating guests. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope this finds you all well, and I will see you all on the next episode. <laughs>